many of us would have been moved uh, this year uh, by the dramatic rescue of the Thai schoolboys at the Pattaya Beach Cave. Uh, they went for a school excursion. They went missing. And the attention of the world turned upon them as uh, first uh, they were found by a diver, but they were trapped deep underground, unable to save themselves in a flooded uh, passageway, barely uh, wide enough to even squeeze through as a child. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of uh, tr being trapped in that cave, their rescue came to fruition. The lost was found and returned to the home of their parents. They sobbed with joy. Well, my own uh, terrifying experience of being lost was slightly less dramatic. Uh, I was in Hong Kong on a holiday. I'd been meeting some friends, and at uh, the end of the night, I uh, caught the train home and then got on what was I thought was the right bus to take me home. And uh, what was meant to be a 10-minute trip soon became one hour. And uh, in the middle of Hong Kong at 1 a.m. in the morning, not speaking any Cantonese, uh, I was completely lost. I tried to explain this to the bus driver, who of course didn't speak English, and eventually he pushed me off the bus, pointed across the road, and uh, drove off. And I realized I'd been on the right bus going the wrong way. Now the point of that story is that it's, uh, it's wonderful to be found. It's wonderful to come home. But before you can be found, and before you can come home, you must first realize that you are lost. In our passage this morning, we read three parables. They're all about being lost and found. Three people or things are lost, and they become found, and one is lost and doesn't realize it. Now, the section of Luke's Gospel, it's all about how we will enter into God's Kingdom, and we've, we've seen in chapter 14 that, that the self-righteous Pharisees, they thought they were going to be in. They, they were religious after all. They were moral. They kept the rules. But in chapter 14, we saw Jesus came for dinner with the Pharisees. He, re, he removed the veil of their religion and he unmasked their arrogance and their self-centeredness and their hypocrisy so that they, in that they refused to come to Jesus and humbly receive the salvation he offered, and accept the invitation to the heavenly banquet. Jesus had insisted, if you remember, that his heavenly banquet would be full, that the poor, the blind, the lame, this, this, this symbol of the spiritually destitute, they would be gathered in, compelled to come in to this kingdom of God. And now as we come to chapter 15, Jesus is hosting his own banquet not with the religious, but with tax collectors and sinners. You see there in verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now the tax collectors were, were Jewish people who collected money from their own people to give to the Romans, often they collected in excess to keep for themselves. They were corrupt. They were traitors. Uh, and, and not only are they the tax collectors there, there are the sinners as well. That's code 
uh, I suspect, for prostitutes. And so Jesus has an unlikely company over for dinner. I wonder today if, uh, uh, you know, Jesus turned up and he went over to book at Bintang and, uh, you know, started hanging out at the nightclubs. Now, of course, as Jesus dines with these people, it's a sign of his acceptance and forgiveness. Uh, They gladly hear his teaching, but uh, they can't simply enter God's kingdom without repentance, without surrendering their lives to Jesus as king. He's not validating their lifestyle in any way. Uh, We saw last week that the disciple of Jesus must renounce everything and put Jesus first, even above their family, even above their money, even above their own life. They must live an old old life and live for him. But these sinners gladly receive Jesus and he eats with them. And that puts Jesus once again on a collision course with the Pharisees. You see the verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes grumble, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They consider themselves morally upright, religious, and it's clear in their mind who gets to heaven and who doesn't. God will bring in people like them and shut out people like the tax collectors and sinners. Now, they're awfully mistaken. And these three parables will be Jesus' powerful answer. Well, he begins uh, in verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine Righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Two parables, uh, they are the same. One item lost, a diligent search, and a joyful celebration. And Jesus expects them to be in resounding agreement with me. I mean, it, doesn't, it should not matter to the man that he has 99 sheep. It should not matter to the woman that she has nine silver coins remaining. The lost sheep is precious. The lost coin is valuable. And it is worth searching for. That Jesus intends to teach us here that every lost sinner matters to God. They are precious to Him. It does not matter what life they are living. Uh, it does not matter if they are prostitutes or tax collectors or porn addicts or they're living in a homosexual relationship or they're gamblers or whatever else they may be doing. God made each and every person. God loves each and every person. Each and every person matters to God. 
and he wants lost sinners to be found. We see the diligent search. Verse 4, the man does not cease until the sheep is found. In verse 8, the woman seeks diligently until the coin is found. Now, if you know me well, you'll know that I'm constantly losing things. It's a miracle I haven't lost my sermon notes already. Just found last week's one in the sermon in the cupboard over there. Uh, last year, I lost my driver's license. I searched every corner of the house. Uh, I called up all the places that I'd recently visited in case I left it at the guardhouse. Uh, I scoured my car and found all kinds of interesting things. I went through my daughter's toys in case uh, she'd stolen it from my wallet and hidden it somewhere. I left no stone unturned, as you might say. But for a very long time, it remained lost until a few months later, it turned up in my wallet (laughs) in the place where I normally keep it. So with God, not that God is forgetful, but he searches, he searches, he searches until he finds that one lost sinner. You see, you can be never too far from God. It does not matter what you have done or who you are. God is looking for you. He longs to find you. He wants to save you. He wants to turn your life around. And whenever a lost sinner is found, we see the celebration. In all the the parables, the lost sheep is found, the lost coin is found, the neighbors are all called in, the catering is ordered, the party is on. He wants to share the joy with everyone. And so with God. You see there in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's such a beautiful picture of God, isn't it? God there in heaven, partying, celebrating, that one sinner has come home. It's a lesson for the Pharisees. There they are, looking at Jesus, feasting with these sinful people. And there they are, grumbling in their self-righteousness. They're so different to God. The Pharisees would have these people shut out from the kingdom of God so that they could feel better about themselves. Not so with God. Now we saw in the Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 34, it was a very similar situation. There were the the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, uh, abusing the sheep uh, to fill their own stomachs. And God said that he would come. He would seek out his sheep. He would bring them home. Now those uh, themes are going to be underlined and driven Uh, to their climax in the third parable, the prodigal son and the lost son. 
is probably one of the most famous stories uh, or parables of Jesus and one of the most beautiful pictures of the God we serve. It's comforting, but it's also challenging too. Well, it's a parable about two sons, and uh, clearly the sons in the story are meant to correspond to those two groups around Jesus. So just the younger son uh, clearly represents the sinners and the tax collectors we met in verse 1. The older son clearly represents the grumbling Pharisees, and the father, of course, is God. So we begin with the younger son. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now the younger son's actions are are as shocking in our day as they were in Jesus' day. To ask your father for the inheritance while he is still living is the ultimate slap in the face. He's basically saying to his father, look, I wish you were dead. I want your money, and I don't want you. I wonder if you're a father, how how your father would uh, respond to such a request. Don't suggest you try it. Cut you off from the family, never speak to you again. The father does something shocking too, the end of verse 12. He divided his property between them. He, he, he gives the son what he wants. Can you imagine the father? He goes going around. He's selling half of the family business. He, giving it to the son. Then watches him walk away with all that he's spent his life building. Imagine the sadness and the humiliation and the grief. Verse 13, not many days later, the son, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there squandered his property in reckless living. You know, he takes a trip to Genting, I guess, and has a good time. Now, as shocking as this uh, younger son's actions are here, many of us here this morning perhaps ought to identify with this younger son. So the younger son's actions are actually a very good picture of how many of us have treated God, either in the past or in the present. You see, sin at its very heart is saying to our Creator, I want your gifts, but I don't want you. I want to live my life, my way, for myself, without you in the picture. Now, Psalm 2 begins with these words, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. There's the world's cry. It's a cry for freedom. Uh, There's the, 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 the thoughts in our hearts. If I could just break free from God, if I could just live in unrestrained indulgence and do what I want to do when I want to do it, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. My life will be good without God in it. Now, no doubt the younger son initially did feel his life was pretty good without his father. He certainly lives it up, isn't it, in luxury. We're told later he squandered the riches with prostitutes. He surrounds himself with friends, fake friends. He's living the good life, as some might say. 
happen in exactly the same way. Uh, many of us imagine that without God, our lives will be good. And as we live for comfort and pleasure and money and whatever experiences we want in our life without rules or experiences, no God telling us what to do, maybe we think that our life really is better. Our life really is enjoyable. John Lennon had this idea in his mind. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. How good would it be without God, says John Lennon. And that's Satan's lie from the garden. It's the deception that corrupts our world in which we live. Because here is the reality. This is God's world. The air we breathe is God's air. The food we eat was given by God. The friendships we enjoy, the environment that we explore, everything that we have is the loving gift of our Heavenly Father. And they cannot be enjoyed properly apart from the giver. To take God's gifts and to reject God's rule really is a lost life that will end in disaster. Well, in the end, the youngest son faces the consequences of his sins. Did you see that in verse 14? When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The youngest son's life really does hit rock bottom. He runs from his father seeking freedom, and now instead he finds himself enslaved. Indeed, he's he's sent out to feed the pigs, and for a Jewish boy, for whom pigs were unclean animals, this was a just about as low as you could go. I mean, I wonder if you've ever been so hungry that you would consider eating your dog's food. He's desperate enough to eat pig's food, but he doesn't even get that. So life without God. It's not a bed of roses. Once beautiful, the rose, as it's connected to its source of life, it's beautiful, it's sparkles, but cut off the rose from its life source. They'll look beautiful for a little while, and then very soon they will wither and die. So God, in his judgment, has ensured that in this world, apart from relationship with him, there will be no lasting joy. There will be no lasting satisfaction. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us of that. And our sin which promises us freedom and happiness in the end enslaves us. Jesus said this in John's Gospel, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And so we think our life would be happy if we could just earn a bit more money. 
very soon we find ourselves enslaved to the very idol that we thought would bring us happiness. As we start working harder, we start staying back longer, we start worrying about the investments and how to protect the money that we have. Or we think as we look at those pictures on the internet that they're going to make us happy and satisfied as I give in to my longings and desires and very soon I find myself that I am enslaved, addicted, consumed by lust and the thing I thought would bring me happiness enslaves me. God in his judgment and his mercy has ensured that any quest for happiness and pleasure and joy apart from him will in the end fail. Such a life will just take us farther and farther from God to the point that unless we turn around, we will risk eternal separation from him as we're shut out of his kingdom. Well, this younger son is in desperate trouble. Perhaps among us this morning, there are some younger sons. Perhaps you know that you've been rejecting God. You know that your life is in a mess. And you know you can't fix it yourself. You're lost. Well, if that is you this morning, that realization is good news. Because the first step to freedom is to recognize your problem and turn around. And as we continue the story, that's exactly what the younger son does. He repents, verse 17. When he came to himself, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He he comes to his senses. What a fool he has been. Working for his father, even as a slave, would be so much better than being enslaved here apart from him. And so he he repents. He he recognizes the errors of his his way. He stops. He, He turns around and he heads home. As I often say, repentance is something that Malaysians find particularly easy to understand because repentance is a U turn, and Malaysians will do U turns anywhere. And the younger son does a U-turn in his heart and in his mind. He turns around and he heads back to his father. And so if we are those younger sons this morning, if we're living lost in our sins, living apart from God, this is what you must do. Make a decision. Come to your senses. Turn around, acknowledge your faults, come home. Well, in verse 20 to 23, we see the father's gracious response. Verse 20, and the son arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. 
and kissed him. Clearly the father's been waiting. He hasn't simply moved on. He hasn't you know, simply taken the, the son's photos out of the photo album and used them to you know, uh, stoke the fire that year. The father has his son in his heart. You can imagine him. Every day he's out there with the, with the binoculars. He's looking out there on that dusty road. Is he coming back today? And as the father looks out, he sees his son coming in the distance, a little speck, larger and larger, as he draws closer and as he recognizes his son, he runs. Now, I don't know if you've uh, seen any old men run before. It's not a particularly pleasant sight, is it? (laughs) Old men don't run. It's ugly. It's kind of not that uh, respectful either, is it? But this father doesn't care. When he sees his son, that's all that matters. And the father's response is so unexpected here, isn't it? I mean, what would you expect him to say? How dare you come back here? I don't know you. You're not my son. I mean, that's what he deserves, isn't it? He said to his father, I wish you were dead, and he squandered all that his father has worked for. And the father instead showers him with grace. He gives him what he doesn't deserve. He embraces him. He kisses him. The youngest son tries to pull out his speech. Uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before the youngest son can even finish the speech, the father interrupts. Verse 22, we, we read his instructions. Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. That's probably the father's own robe. Probably the father's own ring. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And here we see so wonderfully the character of God. Full of grace. Not treating sinful people like us as we deserve. But offering to sinners who've rejected him, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, fresh start. And he treats him with such joy. That was the point we saw earlier, wasn't it? Verse 4, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 10, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the father, as his son comes home, he celebrates. And so here is the wonderful news of the Bible. If we are like the younger son, and if we have been living our life our own way without God, if we've been living in unrepentant sin, far from God, seeking our own happiness and our own pleasure, enslaved to idols that will not bring us happiness. Even if we've done terrible things, even if our life is in a mess, even if the only thing we deserve from God is destruction and judgment, Jesus reminds us here, God is a God of grace. His forgiveness is freely offered. And if you come home, 
he will welcome you in. Isn't that amazing? Even though we may have rejected God, even though we may have long forgotten him, he's never stopped loving us. He wants you home. In fact, that's the whole reason God sent his son into the world 2,000 years ago. God sent Jesus so that sinners like you and me can be brought home to God. Now, indeed, this, this, this very section of Luke's gospel, we're looking at the final verse of this section, chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus declares, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to search out his people, as God promised in, in uh, Ezekiel, to gather them in and rescue them. He came, God in the flesh, to seek and to save us. And even as Jesus tells this parable, he's on a journey to the cross where he will lay down his life for sinful people like you and me. Where he will take upon himself our punishment. As he dies, the criminal beside him there cries out, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Should be us there on the cross. But there Jesus hangs, the innocent one, taking our place, taking upon himself all the righteous judgment that we deserve, paying the debt we owe in full. So that just as the Father here opens his arms to embrace us, so Jesus opens his arms at the cross to welcome us home. And so God's message to you this morning, if you are one of those younger sons, is please come home. God will accept you. Acknowledge your sin. Cast yourself on his mercy. And he will run and welcome you back. And heaven itself will celebrate. So should we. Now, Jesus hasn't quite finished the story, though. There's still the older son. And uh, you may be thinking to yourself, actually, this morning, I'm actually not like the younger son at all. I haven't really, you know, rejected God, you know, walking around, living my life in pleasure for myself all the time. I'm actually not that wicked. I'm actually quite religious actually quite a good person when you think about it. I never left home in the first place. And that's no doubt what the religious leaders were thinking as they heard this parable. It's, you know, it's all those other people out there, those, those wicked sinners, those, those tax collectors. Yeah, they're the lost ones. They better repent and come home. Not me. I'm okay. But look how Jesus ends the parable, verse 25. Now this older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him safe, back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. He hears the music, he hears the celebration, but in contrast to the father's joy, he is 
furious. Imagine what he's thinking to himself. How dare he come home? How dare my father welcome him, that that worthless, good-for-nothing brother? Before long, the father notices his absence. He comes out to him just as he searched for the younger son. There's no favoritism here from the father. And in verse 29, the older son answers his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. You you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, his own brother, came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I mean, you can feel the pent-up emotion there, isn't it? The dissatisfaction, the the, the bitterness of, of years of frustration. We hear his anger. And we begin to realize that this younger son may never have left home. He may appear moral. He may appear good. But he too is lost. He's alienated from his father. He doesn't know his father at all. He thinks of his father as a slave master. A harsh man whom he must earn his approval through his works. He considers his father stingy, never given him a thing. And he doesn't share the character of his father at all, which is so full of grace and generosity. Now, of course, in the context, it's absolutely clear. The older son is just like the Pharisees. They're grumbling as Jesus eats with these sinners. They're, they're so obsessed with their self-righteousness. They're so obsessed with their legalistic obedience to the law. They think that they know God, but they don't know him at all. The God who joyfully welcomes sinners home and eats with them is not the kind of God they want. They want the God who will puff them up in their pride. Well, there's plenty of older sons out there in the world too, isn't there? Religious, trying to please God with all their rituals and their good works, thinking that God is some kind of slave master whose approval you must earn, whilst at the same time in arrogant pride, rejecting and despising other people whom they deem unworthy to approach God. Look how the father replies to the older son. In verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me. All you have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found, he urges him, you need to see things differently. Don't you see my love for you? Can't you share my love for your brother? By the way, he is this brother of yours. But that's where the story ends. It's quite a kick in the end of the story, isn't it? And we don't know what the older brother does. We don't know, does he come inside? Does he leave after this and go off himself? Does he return to the father? That's the power of the story, isn't it? Because it leaves us, it leaves the question 
For the self-reliant religious person, what will you do with Jesus? Will you go on refusing him because he welcomes sinners? Let's ask the question this morning, are we then like the older son? Do we view God as some kind of taskmaster whose approval we must earn? Are we someone who is self-focused, puffed up in our pride as we look down on others and see God as someone who owes us things? Because if that's how we think about God, we don't really know him at all. We don't share his heart. We're trusting in ourselves, we're living for ourselves, and if we reflect long enough, we will realize that the sin of this older son is not very different to the sin of the younger son. Different reasons, but in the end they both rejected the father. So who are you this morning? Are you the younger son? Whatever you have done, the father is waiting. He's done everything necessary through his death on the cross, come home. Are you the older son? Will you come in? Will you recognize you two are lost? Will you see God for who he really is and see your need for grace too? As I mentioned at the start, it is very possible to be lost and not even realize it. And perhaps this morning, God is waking you up to help you see the truth, that perhaps you are lost, and you need to be found. Well, I trust that uh, many of us uh, this morning uh, have already experienced the loving grace of the Father. We've already been found. And uh, then as we reflect on this passage, it should fill us with such joy and gratitude for, for all that God has done for us. It's an opportunity to reflect again on just how much God loves us, how different our lives would be without him, just how good and gracious and generous he is, how good it is to be a Christian. We need to be reminded of these things because we so easily forget it. But more than that, as we reflect on what he has done, here comes the challenge for us. Do we share God's concern for the lost? I mean, if we can be so locked to our computer screens, tracking the news and the, 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 the rescue of these Thai boys, if we can be so moved to tears when we see their safe rescue and return to their parents, how much more should we long for lost sinners to be found? How much more should we celebrate when they repent and come home? How much more should we rejoice when people trust in Jesus and are rescued from the judgment of God? Now, if you're anything like me, it's, it is very easy to, over time, just become kind of cold and disinterested uh, towards 
not lost. I mean, you, you drive along, isn't it, on the roads, and you, you, you forget, isn't it, that, that millions and millions of people around you are not Christians. They're headed for a future of e- eternal judgment. They're living lost lives. But it just kind of washes over us as we get so consumed with our busyness and the daily worries of life. We forget that our family, our friends, our colleagues, our classmates, our neighbors, who are non-Christians, many, many, many more, they're lost. They're in desperate trouble. They need to be found. And here is the heartbeat of our Heavenly Father, the chief concern of our Savior. And ought it not to be ours? Jesus feasted as he sought the lost. He he ate with the morally rejected of society. He sought out the broken. He brought the news of grace. How much more should we get out of the comfort of our lives and bring the gospel to the lost? At the end of the gospel, that's how it finishes, is the risen Lord Jesus in Luke 24. He sends out his people to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. That is our commission if we are the people of God. Will we go and seek the lost? Will we be moved by the Father's compassion to seek out people and bring them to Jesus? What would it look like? Will we be moved to pray for the opportunity to speak of Jesus at home or at the workplace? Now, would we be moved to invite a family member or a classmate along to the guest night? Would we be willing to associate with the morally rejected of society and bring them the news of grace. That is the heart of our Heavenly Father. And it ought to be the heart of ourselves as well. And when a lost sinner does come home, will we rejoice and join the Heavenly Soul? Well, let's uh, pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. It really is so hard to comprehend uh, how you could love uh, wicked and broken people like each one of us. You know our sins more fully even than ourselves. Uh, We have offended you beyond imagination. And yet we thank you that you sent Jesus to save us, to die on the cross, so that we can be welcomed home to your kingdom. We thank you that we can now call you our Heavenly Father. Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts to so treasure your love for us that we show the same concern 
for others. We pray in particular this morning for any who are among us who have not yet put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Father, we pray that you would indeed bring them to repentance even today and uh, bring them home and into your family. And uh, we pray for our friends and our family and our colleagues and our classmates and any around us who have uh, not yet uh, repented and turned to Jesus. Please give us opportunities to speak to them. And uh, please change their hearts, we pray, and save them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.